In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I bring you greetings from the Berkeley Divinity School at Yale University, uh, which has been fortunate to partner with you by sending you uh, Reverend Jesse, um, Reverend Brandon, and Reverend John. I told the earlier group that any uh, egregious shortcomings in their ministry you can blame on me rather than taking it out on themselves. In fact, I know that's not the case, but it's a pleasure to be with you, and thank you, Jeannie, and all for your welcome today. Uh, you sometimes think you can come to church for respite from the ways in which the headlines uh, bear down upon us with the burden of contemporary life. There's usually a lot in the news about the economy, for instance, right? Um, inflation, unemployment, interest rates, stock exchange results haven't been so good in the past year. So you want to come and sort of commune with God and forget about all that stuff, and then instead we have a set of readings which are all about economics. In Micah, the prophet castigates wealthy ancient Israelites who have had good results in their stock market. That's an ancient agricultural joke, by the way. Right? Uh, they have plenty of calves and sheep to offer in sacrifices. He castigates wealthy ancient Israelites who are misunderstanding God's demands upon them and their wherewithal, even as they lack concern for inequality and justice in their wider society. In the epistle, Paul castigates his Corinthian congregation by pointing at their social profile. Not many of you were powerful people. Not many of you were of noble birth. And your social profile is a message or a sign to you about the way in which God thinks about these things and material and concrete power the, work, the way the world does. And then last but not least, of course, in the gospel, we hear the wonderful and mysterious description by Jesus of God's reign, God's economic program, God's social program, the Beatitudes. Not blessed are the wealthy, blessed are the powerful, blessed are those with ample retirement savings, blessed are those with material success, but rather blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, and so forth. Across many years difference. I mean, they're a long way from us in time, but they're a long way from each other as well. There's about 700 years between Micah and Jesus and Paul. Across many years difference, they are written with a strikingly common voice when it comes to the question about what God's economy is like and how it differs from the ways in which human attempts to create power and uh, wealth play out in our lives. We hear, in effect, in this set of readings, what God thinks key indicators are. Not so much about unlimited growth, rather more about effective distribution. Who are the beneficiaries matters in God's economy. And this economy has promises to offer to those who participate in it, and it places demands on them as well. Now, of course, God's economy isn't just about what we otherwise call the economy. But there is no way that we can exclude the ways in which we think about power and wealth and the ordering of human society relative to the reign of God and the way that God places demands on us. 
The news, however, the past few days that you might have been wanting to take refuge from in church might not have been about key economic indicators. If you've had a television on or opened a newspaper in the past couple of days, surely uh, you have seen the ways in which the terrible fact of Tyree Nichols' death seems to hold us to account for the way in which our human society is ordered relative to God's will. The horrifying images associated with that event, of course, have their own power, which speak not only to the brutality and the horror of that particular death, but also the way in which we turn experiences of horror into a form of perverse entertainment, the ways in which such images may, of course, strike at us deeply in an emotional way, but end up becoming part of our culture of entertainment and distraction. We don't rise up as one and say, let's prevent this from happening. Rather, we stare and wait for the next picture of whoever was shot, whoever was bombed, and so forth. In the oldest of the biblical passages today, from around 700 BC, Micah is speaking into a society that is undergoing its own sense of crisis, which is seasoned by violence or the threat thereof. In his case, the Assyrian Empire, led by its own ancient Near Eastern Vladimir Putin, shall we say, the Assyrian Empire has marched westward and has begun to threaten and indeed to destroy the northern part of the Kingdom of Israel and is now casting its shadow over Jerusalem. Micah tells the people that this threat is not just incidental geopolitics into which they're caught up with by an accident of history, but rather that this threat constitutes a wake-up call from God, that this is God's potential judgment on the pervasive inequality and injustice that characterise their society. And as part of the word picture that he draws in encouraging the Israelites to respond to God's call to faithfulness, he imagines a well-intentioned Israelite coming to the temple and trying to work out what it is that they have to do in order to please God and to remove this sense of threat. The potential hypothetical Israelite worshipper starts making a set of bids, working out how high they might have to travel in terms of offering their own economic resources back to God in order to seek divine favour. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? And the answer is given, or at least the, the potential answer, the, the bids that are made by the Israelite takes the form of this ascending series of bids of potential gifts. Perhaps if I give God this much, I'll be okay. All right? Okay, what about a bit more? Or what about a bit more? The first bid is, shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? That sounds like a perfectly respectable and decent kind of stewardship program from 700 BC point of view. But then, uh, rhetorically, it goes up a notch. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? We're stepping into the realm of fantasy or at least of hyperbole here. But then the third bid is the most striking and the most chilling. We go up another notch. And the hypothetical worshipper says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Yes, 
this is a reference to human sacrifice, to the possibility of offering infants as burnt offerings, which of course is horrifying to us, and I think also to Micah, by the way, but the, even the very fact that this was a known practice is the only reason that he can offer it as part of the ascending bids. You know, surely the highest thing I could give would be my own child, because that's really going to have some impact on me, isn't it? More than all the olive oil and the sheep and so forth. All of these, therefore, are sort of attempts at trying to win divine favour through economic activity. What's the gift that would be big enough to make God pleased with me, or to take away the threat that I perceive uh, from my staid existence? The child sacrifice image, again, may be so shocking that it distracts us from the fact that it's seen as a sort of economic idea. Remember, there's another very famous story, you know, about child sacrifice, or almost child sacrifice, right? Where Abraham takes Isaac, apparently at divine command, to offer him before, of course, that is resolved. So, those Micah is criticizing are taking assumptions like those that we apply in the human economy and trying to work out what kind of transaction will actually reap the reward that will help them in the divine economy to deal with the threat that they're experiencing. But of course, its logic is flawed because the idea that we can deal with God transactionally, you know, let's make a deal, God. How much do you want? How much is it going to take? The idea that that's how God's economy works is profoundly flawed. But still, Micah's addressees go on, what gift will be big enough to impress you, God? What gift will change your mind? What deal can I make? And last and most tellingly, not just what can I sacrifice to impress you, but whom? This is surely the greatest temptation in the human economy and the ways in which it presents itself falsely as the solution to human need, that we tend to sacrifice people on the altars of our quest for material security. And I have to ask today whether we do not see our whole society working with a logic like this, when it offers the body of someone like Tyree Nichols, or the bodies of so many young black men in particular, because there are too many of them who have been offered on these false gods' altars for that to be a merely coincidental fact. Whether our whole society does not offer the bodies of many people, in fact, treating them as dispensable in the rush towards achieving accumulation, security for others. While the violent death of a young black man is an extraordinary, spectacular and tragic manifestation of this. There are so many others in our society whose lives are treated merely as commodities, whose labor is the reason that they matter, if at all, or whose capacity to spend and be part of a market is the reason that they matter. Tyree, therefore, is not simply the victim of a particular egregious act of horrifying violence which has nothing to do with the rest of us who decry those things, because of course we do. His death is the manifestation of a system in which the accumulation of a few is achieved at the expense of many. Micah, I think, makes this point already when he criticizes the offer of a human sacrifice. Because in sharing God's response to these 
proposals for sacrifice, he makes quite clear that they suggest not only the misunderstanding of how divine favour works, but the misunderstanding of what God's will for human society is. He has told you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. In Micah, but also in these other passages today, we hear, I think, a consistently different vision of human life, the economy of God, which contrasts with the ways that we are tempted to use power and wealth as false gods to whom we sacrifice in a variety of ways, up to and including dispensing with the lives of others. And despite the obviously concrete political and economic nature of the way in which these false sacrifices work, I suggest that just as Micah encourages us to believe, this is fundamentally a spiritual question. The ways in which we align our lives and the material resources that are God's gift to us, the way we give them back or deploy them, says something about the deepest ways in which God is working within us or in which we are holding God at a distance. We are called to give, indeed. We are called to give not because we can gain divine advantage, but rather to celebrate with thanks everything that we have received, and all of which truly belongs to God. Uh, long before any of us were at Yale, there was a great spiritual teacher on the faculty named Henry Nouwen. Some of you may have come across his written works. In one of his books, In the Name of Jesus, Henry Nouwen says this, the great message we have to carry as followers of Jesus is that God loves us not because of what we do or because of what we accomplish, but because God has created and redeemed us in love and has chosen us to proclaim that love is the true source of all human life. The choice between the two economies, the human economy of power and accumulation and the divine economy of grace, of gift, is a difficult one to make from day to day. We all falter. We all seek to live more and more into the sense of thankfulness and mutual love, which is God's gift and God's will for all of us. But when we come here from week to week, we are drawn materially and communally into a different kind of sacrifice, a different kind of offering, the Eucharist. The Eucharist is the center of our divine economy. We offer here to God material gifts, not burnt offerings, not rivers of olive oil. Rather, we bring the simplest of things, bread and wine, the staple foods of Micah's time and of Jesus' time. Not victims prepared by any violent means, like an animal sacrifice, but peaceable things, produced with the plowshare and the pruning hook, into which the prophets talk about the ancients beating their weapons of war. When we bring bread and wine to the Eucharist, we receive them back then, transformed and infinitely enriched. We receive them as Christ's body and blood, as the living presence of that final sacrifice, that one who offered himself so that violence might cease, 
and so that we might live in peace with one another. But not only do we receive them back as the divine gift of the Eucharist, we are thereby transformed day by day into becoming the body of that Christ who is offered in the Eucharist. These are signs of a gift that we can never repay and which we should not ever attempt to repay because everything, including the bread and wine that we offer to God, is God's gift to us before we begin. And our task is not to work out how much we can give back to please God. Our task is to acknowledge that there is nothing we can give that can please God, not only because God is the author of all things, but because God does not need anything from us other than inviting us to love. God's infinite love needs nothing from us, but it invites everything. Giving, then, all that we have, as we may find ourselves increasingly able to do, being drawn into the Eucharistic life of God's economy of grace. Giving all that we have, we find that we receive it back tenfold. Whether or not with material prosperity, then with something even more fundamental, which is thankfulness. And thus we become, as St. Paul says in the letter to the Romans, living sacrifices, people whose lives are day by day brought into the economy of grace and which become agents of the economy of grace in our dealings with others in the wider world. This is good news for us, good news for those of us who know that we depend upon the love of God for the meaning and purpose of our lives. But as Jesus tells us, it is good news also for the meek, for those who mourn, for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for the pure of heart, for all who know that their dependence is not on worldly power and accumulation, but upon the infinite, unconditional love of God. Amen.